You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is Tuesday, the 22nd of September. It's also the first day of autumn. So here's your quarantine tip of the day. Bobbing for apples is obviously not safe this year. So if you want to watch children nearly drown just to eat a piece of fruit, you'll have to wait until next year, you freaking weirdo. What kind of person even wants to see a kid almost drown just to eat a piece of fruit? Who are you? Anyway, on tonight's show, Democrats plot their supreme revenge. Desi Lydic zooms with her uncle Lou Dobbs and we chat to Patrice Cullors, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Let's kick things off with the Supreme Court, the world's most exclusive retirement home. In the immediate aftermath of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader and failed attempt at baking bread, has announced that he would allow President Trump to nominate her replacement, even though he had blocked Barack Obama from appointing Merrick Garland during an election year. But Democrats still held a shred of hope that they could persuade four moderate GOP senators to show some integrity and stick to their principles. And that hope lasted almost a full day and a half. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell secured GOP votes to move ahead with a replacement for the late Supreme Court Justice. Utah Senator Mitt Romney coming forward in the last 90 minutes to say that he will vote in a statement saying, quote, I intend to follow the Constitution and precedent in considering the president's nominee. If the nominee reaches the Senate floor, I intend to vote based upon their qualifications. Yes, my friends, even Mitt Romney, the dad you ask when your other Republican dads say no, is going along with Mitch McConnell's plan. And I know some people were holding out hope that he would refuse to help the Republicans push through before the election. But for some reason, people always forget that Mitt Romney is still a conservative senator from one of the most conservative states. People act like Romney came into the Senate with a pussy hat on, but no, he's only moderate in comparison to Cinnamon Hitler. And getting a lasting majority on the Supreme Court is what Romney and other Republicans have been dreaming about for 50 years on his bedroom wall growing up. Romney had a poster of Superman, a dancing horse, and an empty Supreme Court seat. Now, with Romney's decision, it means that McConnell now has the votes he needs to fill this vacant seat. And there's nothing that the Democrats can do to stop him, which is why now they're turning their attention on how to get revenge. The Democratic leadership vowing to fight back, even considering increasing the number of judges on the Supreme Court. We first have to win the majority before that can happen. But once we win the majority, God willing, everything is on the table. Mitch McConnell, Mm. we need to tell him that he is playing with fire. So I asked Biden a hypothetical question. Would he consider adding more seats to the Supreme Court? It's a legitimate question, but let me tell you I'm not gonna answer that question because it will shift all the focus. That's what he wants. He never wants to talk about the issue at hand. He always tries to change the subject. But let's say I answer that question. Then the whole debate's gonna be, well, Biden said or didn't say. Biden said he would or wouldn't. Oh, this is an interesting tactic from Joe Biden. You see, he knows that his best chance of beating Trump is if the issues are coronavirus and getting America back to normal. So to avoid a messy conversation about packing the Supreme Court, he's just refusing to answer the question. 
which is pretty slick. Where were you on the night that the murder took place? That is a great question. However, if I answer that, then the only thing the courtroom will be talking about is whether I'm guilty or not, and you know, whether my alibi checks out. It's gonna be like a whole thing, so I'm gonna pass. You know, Trump should also refuse to answer questions about any issues that aren't good for him. You know, like the coronavirus response, healthcare, climate change, education, race relations, foreign affairs, income inequality, taxes, corruption in his administration, his weird relationship with Putin. But even if Biden doesn't want to charge into this debate, other Democrats definitely do. And some of them are threatening that if Republicans go through with filling RBG's seats, then when Democrats win back the Senate, they'll just add more seats to the Supreme Court, AKA court packing, which is one way to bring balance to the courts. Although obviously, once the Republicans get back in power, then they'll add more justices to the courts. Which is why I think Democrats should just cut to the chase and make everyone in America a Supreme Court justice. I mean, think about it. Because of Corona, most of us are already comfortable working in robes anyway, so it'll be a seamless transition. But let's be honest. Knowing what we know about Democrats, ain't shit gonna happen. Yeah, when Democrats say, everything is on the table, and then watch out, Republicans, you're about to get a sternly worded email. To whom it may concern, bitches. Good luck enjoying your 40-year hold on the Supreme Court after that. But let's move on to the coronavirus. The worst thing to come out of China since your iPhone battery. As people have been returning to school and activities are moving indoors with the cooler weather, cases have been spiking in countries around the globe. And almost nowhere is doing worse than the United States, where the number of COVID deaths has just hit an astonishing 200,000, far more than any other country in the world. Which really makes you question whether or not failing to do even the bare minimum is an effective strategy to combat the disease. Although I will say this, I truly believe that with this president and the right Sharpie, we can bring that number down to just two. Now, if you're wondering why the pandemic has been so hard to get under control here in the US, well, take a look at what happened yesterday when one pro-Trump politician tried to make face masks great again. And at a Trump campaign event yesterday, Ohio's Lieutenant Governor, John Husted, was booed for suggesting that the audience wear masks. But if you go into a grocery store where you gotta wear one, all right? Hang on, hang on, just listen up. Just listen up. All right, I get it. But if somebody tells you to, t to take it off, you can at least say that you're trying to save the country by wearing one of President Donald Trump's masks, all right? All right. Wow. Wow. This crowd booed even when the lieutenant governor was promoting Trump masks. I guess we finally found the limits of MAGA loyalty. Trump can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they don't care, but if he puts on a mask, those people will eat him alive. You know, I really love how these Trump people are the same ones who always talk about liberals getting triggered. Yet when they see a three-inch piece of cloth, they have a meltdown. No! Ah! I would rather be the reason thousands of people die than have cloth on my face. And this poor guy, he reminded me of a guidance counselor at a school. You remember when those counselors would come and try and convince teens to use condoms? 
Okay, now I know you kids don't think protection is cool, but what if I did a rap about it? Someone drop a beat. You suck! Okay, okay, more of an insult than a beat, but I can work with that. It's silly not to rap your willy. But it's not just people at Trump rallies who aren't taking coronavirus as seriously as they should, because apparently the Pentagon also has some pretty messed up priorities. Breaking within the last half hour, we've learned the Pentagon used $1 billion of taxpayer money meant for masks and swabs to instead make jet engine parts and body armor. That comes out to a third of the pandemic relief approved earlier this year. The Washington Post reporting the CARES Act gave the Pentagon money to prevent, prepare for, and respond to the virus. The Defense Department made the payments, even though health officials believe there are still major funding gaps in responding to the pandemic. Okay. Either the Pentagon just doesn't give a shit, or they heard that Corona is airborne and they took it way too literally. But in the Pentagon's defense, in the defense of the defense, get it, because it's a thing. <laughs> in the Pentagon's defense, we've all been there. I mean, who hasn't spent money on stuff that was supposed to go towards something else? You know, like when your mom sent you out to buy milk, but instead you just watered down the milk that was left at home, and then you used the money to buy a pet hamster from the kid down the block who just had a litter. But in the Pentagon's case, people could end up dying instead of just a hamster. Fenwick, I just wanted to say I'm so sorry. I guess I wasn't ready for the responsibility. I'll miss you, buddy. I mean, think about it. America's infrastructure is literally falling apart. Schools are a disaster. Millions of people don't even have basic healthcare. What's the point of having defense if there's nothing left to defend? The United States spends so much money on weapons, I'm starting to think it would be cheaper to just to bribe other countries not to go to war. Like, why does the US need more fighter jets? Coronavirus has killed way more Americans than any terrorist group. I bet right now ISIS is looking at COVID like, damn, I know we said death to America, but you guys are extreme. But let's move on to Florida, a place whose state bird is the movie Bad Boys 2. With President Trump accusing Democratic states of being too soft on political protesters, the Republican governor of Florida is now taking steps to ensure that that will never happen in his state. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis moving to crack down on people who resort to violence during protests. On Monday, he unveiled a proposal for a new law called the Combating Violence, Disorder, and Looting and Law Enforcement Protection Act. Yeah, the bill would increase penalties for crimes committed during protests, and it would withhold state funding for any local municipalities that defund the police. There is also a measure calling for drivers to not be charged should they happen to kill or injure a protester with their vehicles while fleeing for safety from a mob. The proposal would also make participating in a violent protest a third-degree felony, and protesters who destroy public property could also face felony charges. The American Civil Liberties Union says the bill could unfairly lead to people who are not participating in violence being arrested and charged with those felonies. All right, there's a lot going on in this bill. First of all, as the ACLU points out, this bill could make it a felony to be at a protest where anyone else at the protest commits a crime, which is an amazing double standard if you ask me. So if anyone in a protest gets violence, then everyone at the protest is a criminal. But if a police officer beats someone at that protest, well, he's just a bad apple. You can't blame the whole police force for that. It's just a few bad apples, am I right? Also, let's be real. 
Saying that anyone is now free to kill protesters with their car if they were fleeing from a mob is just gonna give people license to run down protesters whenever they want. This is basically stand your ground, but for cars. And I know for a fact, I don't wanna get run over because someone is sick of waiting in protest traffic. No, if I'm getting run over, it's because James Corden wasn't paying attention during carpool karaoke. That's a fun way to die. <laughs> and I've never seen anything. The truth is, if anyone is in danger here, it's the protesters, not the drivers. In fact, at the height of protest this year, drivers in the US hit protesters with their cars 66 times. And so apparently the response to this from the governor of Florida is, well, this thing's getting really popular. We better legalize it. So Republicans are replacing RBG. Coronavirus deaths are only going up. And in Florida, pretty soon it's gonna be legal to play GTA in the streets. And with all this craziness going on in the world, you probably wish that you could just hop on a plane and take a long flight to an exotic vacation. Well, here's a solution to the first half of that problem. It may have been the fastest selling flight in Qantas history, a seven hour trip around Australia, where you don't get off the plane at all. Demand is high. Tickets sold out in just 10 minutes. The date of this flight to nowhere and back is October the 10th, and the plane is a Boeing 787 Dreamliner, one usually reserved for international travel. This time, though, it's a long, local cruise. Flights like these have become more common in recent months. In July, Taipei's Songshan Airport began the first of three flights to nowhere, where passengers got on board a plane and it never actually took off. Royal Brunei Airlines did a dine and fly sightseeing tour in August. And Singapore Airlines is reportedly considering a new route as well to nowhere. Hold up. So you buy a plane ticket, go to the airport, and then five hours later, you're at the same airport? Guys, LaGuardia has been offering that for years. Not to mention, this seems like a giant F you to climate change and Greta Thunberg. Right? People were like, look, Greta, we don't want to pollute the sky, but sometimes you have to fly. And now people are like, yeah, I don't have to go anywhere, okay? I just want to watch Big Bang Theory on a really tiny screen. <laughs> Sheldon is so funny. Wait, is that Sheldon? Yeah, I think it's Sheldon. I mean, I guess the one upside of this is that you don't have to bring any luggage. Although knowing most airlines, they'll still figure out a way to lose your luggage anyway. But I don't get it. I left my luggage at home. I didn't bring luggage. Yes, I understand, sir. And now that luggage is somehow in Malaysia. We'll give you a $25 voucher to buy yourself an outfit and we'll call you when the bags arrive, okay? But flying is only part of the air travel experience, which is why Leo Deblin has a new service just for you. Did the coronavirus cancel your summer vacation? You were gonna see the world. Now you're stuck at home seeing your ugly ass kids. Well, pack your bags, cause guess what? You can't go to a tropical resort, but you can still go to the airport. Introducing Leo Deblin's airport at home. That's right, I'll give you all the stress, frustration, and boredom of flying in your house. I'll make your crib feel like you was at LaGuardia. I'll inspect your suitcase and throw half of it out. No shirts over three ounces. Is that shampoo? Man, give me that, little boy. You ain't blowing up my plane. Or stop by the cafe, where I'll give you the world's soggiest sandwich. That'll be $40. I'll take up every outlet so you can't charge your phone. And what's that on your TV? Netflix? 
Nope. Now it's CNN on mute. And when you've had enough, I'll give you back your suitcase with a weird wet spot on it. Could be blood. Order now, and I'll let in some random birds to fly around your ceiling all day. It ain't but $85. You need to get that from your mama. Exit 120 by the fairgrounds. Barbering Institute temporarily closed due to COVID. All right, we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, Desi Lydic has a Zoom call with Lou Dobbs on Fox News. So stick around. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. In these corona times, everyone is keeping in touch with their relatives using Zoom calls. And that includes our own Desi Lydic, who's actually related to Lou Dobbs from Fox News. Yeah. He's her third uncle on her roommate's side by marriage. So recently, Desi checked in with Uncle Lou to see how he's doing. Hey, Uncle Lou. I'm so glad we're catching up. Oh my God, I love your Zoom background. So cool. So sick of seeing the same old boring backgrounds. They're not even inventive. They're not even original. Golden Gate Bridge, boring. Anyway, enough about Zoom. How are you? How was your day? President Trump today had a great day, a day that any president could only dream of. Oh, well, I kind of wanted to know about you, but I guess if... President Trump started off the day with a nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, sure, I guess that's exciting. It's an extraordinary, as you say, uh, commendation from uh, the Nobel uh, uh, Committee, and uh, it's, uh, it's an honor that he fully deserves. Okay, I get it, you're proud of the president. What about your kids? Or I hear they're back in school. What, what made you decide to send them back? The president pledging to restore patriotic education in our schools. Oh, you mean like the Constitution? Right. Yeah, that's important to learn about. Until this president, there was no discussion of it. Okay, that's definitely not true. Look, Uncle Lou, can I just be honest with you for a second? I, I, I respect your point of view on all things. Good. Because I have to tell you, I think you have a bit of an obsession with Donald Trump. Am I right? It defies any kind of logic, reason, or decency. Yes, I know. It has me worried about you. It has a whole family worried. You're even starting to look like him. Here. The, the hair, the skin. It's delusion of one kind or another. Exactly. And it's becoming extremely dangerous, in my opinion. Your thoughts? Yes, it's dangerous and unhealthy. I'm so glad you're finally seeing it. Oh, this is a really big day for you. And it was a day of many gifts for President Trump. With 55 days till the election, new polling shows President Trump has cut Joe Biden's lead in half. Oh my God, I thought we were having a breakthrough. Okay, take care, Uncle Lou. I'm gonna go have about seven glasses of wine. Impressive numbers. Thanks to you. Bye-bye. Uh, props to you for trying, Desi. You're a great third niece. All right, we gotta take a quick break, but when we come back, I'll be talking to one of America's best legal journalists about the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So stick around. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. 
Earlier today, I spoke with Slate's senior editor and legal correspondent, Dahlia Lithwick. We talked about the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what's in store for the Supreme Court. Dahlia Lithwick, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So let's talk about the notorious RBG. Many people were fans of RBG. Few people on this earth can say that RBG was a fan of theirs, but that was your relationship with her. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that came to be? There's no way I can answer that question. It's crazy. But I will say, um, before I met her, um, she had told uh, Jess Braven at the Wall Street Journal, asked who she read, and she said she read me. And then she went on to say she liked my writing because it was spicy, which I think <laughs> is Ginsburg speak for like a little bit sassy and irreverent. But I think that she um, appreciated that I didn't take the court terribly, terribly seriously. And it was ironic coming from somebody who actually took the court terribly, terribly seriously herself. Right. First things first, let's get it out the way. Do the Democrats have any fighting hope in stopping the Republicans from appointing a Supreme Court justice to that seat? I think first things first, no. I think that uh, Senate Democrats now have a choice about tactics of how to message this and how to use this to get out the vote in the election, maybe, you know, flip the Senate and... Mm -hmm. and get the president out of office and just make the point that all of the sort of internecine fighting about politics notwithstanding, the court is gonna be the thing now that preserves minority rule in America. And if you care about that, do something about it in the election. It's not a very optimistic answer, but I think it's truly the only answer I have. As someone who has for many years struggled to understand how openly partisan the court system is in America, is America's Supreme Court system broken? I think that the framers certainly never anticipated that all reproductive rights in the country would turn on the death of an 87-year-old woman, right? I mean, something is broken. And you can parse it several ways. I, I certainly think that we could say the court is broken because the norms, the Senate norms around confirmation are broken mm -hmm. and that... There was, you know, we're talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was confirmed, like, what, 96 to 3. Right. Um, and she sat there and openly talked about her views of abortion and privacy, by the way. It wasn't like she was hiding the ball. Um, so sometime between that vote and Justice Scalia's vote, something happened that got us to the era of 50-50 voting. And I think right. what happened then became sort of the norm of, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna seat your justice, uh, Barack Obama, because uh, we're gonna say it's because it's the presidential year, but in four years we're gonna say something different. So that norm broke, and I think the sort of heavy politicization of the court as America's football is whether that means the court is broken or America's broken. I guess it's either or. But we need the court, right? We got DACA this year. Title VII now ensures this year that you cannot be fired for being gay or transgender mm -hmm. in the workplace. Mm -hmm. This is a big freaking deal. The court could save the Affordable Care Act. We need the court. And so right. the fact that the court is simultaneously broken and that it's also sort of the last backstop, that's the really terrifying part. We need it to function. 
Before I let you go, I wanted to pitch a solution to you. What if they reformed the, the, the way you choose the justices in America in that uh, Republicans and Democrats both pick their like top five. They put them into like balls, like the lottery. And then you have to approve who gets put in. And then everyone puts them in like a giant tumbler. You don't know which ball it's gonna be. And that way, you know, whichever one gets pulled out has to be the Supreme Court pick. Like that's it. That's basically what it is. That way, I was thinking maybe each side would be more likely to pick a justice that they think is a reasonable person because it could be the other side's ball that pops up. Do you think that would work? I think, believe it or not, there is a serious proposal that's been put forward by some professors that's kind of a version of that that would have, uh, you know, an equal number of justices from each side and then have them choose uh, mutual. So it's a version of what you're describing. And I think there are sort of in the structural reforms category, if that's what we're calling it, there are reforms that look like that. Um, uh, and, and maybe, you know, like you don't have the Vanna White with the ball, but like, I do think that at <laughs> least you have the notion that everybody has a vested interest in picking good right. people. And so, you know, like, Joe Biden says everything's on the table and I think they should put the ball, the ball in the basket solution on the table too. There's nothing wrong with it. And it's probably better than a lot of the ideas that are being floated. So <laughs> two thumbs up from this judge. Well, that's, that's all I can get from you. Um, thank you so much again for taking the time. Thank you again for your amazing writing. I would recommend everybody read it because if they want to know more about RBG and why she was so fantastic, I think there are a few writers uh, people can read that um, can truly bring her to life the way you have. So thank you so much for joining us on the show again. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you so much, Dahlia. We're gonna take a quick break, but don't go away because after the break, I'll be talking to one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. So stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Patrice Cullors, the co-founder and executive director of Black Lives Matter. We spoke about the state of the movement, how she's inspiring young activists, and what the movement is really about. Check it out. Patrice Cullors, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thanks for having me back. As, as one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, as we know it, you are no stranger to just the huge amounts of pushback any slogan can get. And so when you, when you came out with defund the police, more recently, you have started talking more about divesting from the police. Is there a reason that you changed or are starting to move away from defund to divest? And how does that tie into the Breathe Act that I believe you're working on? Yes, I mean, for us, uh, the defund movement uh, will be the ultimate slogan of this movement. Uh, we're not going to step away from that. But we've been talking about divesting out of the police for a very long time. And it's just now that it's been popularized. It's, it's in this moment in which people are truly questioning the role of police. The Breathe Act, which is modern day, the modern day civil rights legislation of our time is right. looking at how do we not just talk about divesting or defunding from the police, but what does it look like to reinvest into our communities, into 
social services and to um, people having access to adequate public education, people having access to adequate health care, people having access to adequate healthy food. Let's stop divesting. Let's stop investing all of our dollars into the police and the criminal legal system. And let's actually invest in, into human care, into dignity, into the into life for human beings. I have done extensive reading on, you know, reforming the police. I've done extensive reading on uh, divesting from the police, defunding the police, all these different measures that people have, have, have proposed in different ways. How do you go from a world of police for everything to no police or to police for only a few things, but not have that messy period in the middle where crime just goes up? I think there's a number of ways to do this. Um, Many of us that are part of the defund movement or even the abolitionist movement are not actually saying that this can happen overnight. We know there needs to be phases. Phase one of the plan, which is what are the first few things we can decriminalize that we can make no longer illegal? Um, I would say homelessness. Um, I would say drug and alcohol addiction. Um, and I would say mental health um, crisis. So if we start with just those three pillars of decriminalizing them or making them fully legal, then we can actually start by, okay, what do we do with the homeless population since we're not going to be investing the police to deal with them? Oh, we can get them housing. How does that work? But I would really push that this is where elected officials come in. Congress, Senate, our local elected city council, county board of supervisors must work with the community to build a plan to phase us out of over-policing. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is the term defund the police is not so much get rid of this thing right now, it's start building towards, it's starting to build towards something. The same way, you know, when the president of the United States said, we're going to put a man on the moon, he didn't say, we're going to build a rocket and then we're going to build a station for the rocket to launch from and then we're going to build, it was like, this is the end goal of what we're going to do, let's start the journey today. Okay. That's exactly right. Let's talk a little bit about your book. You are a best-selling author and it's entitled When They Call You a Terrorist, A Story of Black Lives Matter and the Power to Change the World. Your, your memoir is really touching because you don't just talk about activism. You talk about your life and how you got into activism. I was really touched by how you talk about how you grew up in a Jehovah's Witness family and you talk about how your mother was kicked out of the house for being pregnant at 16. And then you talk about how later on you were then shunned by your family for coming out as queer. Do you think that that has imbued within yourself an affinity for all those groups of people who are marginalized in society? Absolutely. I feel deeply connected to, uh, say, the underdog, to marginalized communities, because I lived it firsthand as a young person growing up in a working class, poor family, witnessing my single mom have to really be a single mother and not get the support, um, not just from her family, but also not get the support from the state, uh, from the government, um, and witnessing my, fa- my, my father and my brother be in and out of prison. Um, I think that really impacted me both personally, but once I became an activist, I realized, oh, this is a much bigger system and I can shape that system and I can be a part of a movement that shapes that system. Before I let you go, there's one major issue that is going to affect the election in November. And that is how people perceive the protests that are taking place in the streets. 
you know, Fox News and conservative media have done a really good job of framing this as an anarchist society where people are gonna go around burning everything in the streets and that's what Black Lives Matter is about. I've always been interested in why yourself and your fellow co-founders of Black Lives Matter haven't said, you know what, I'm gonna be the leader, front-face leader of this movement and speak to what Black Lives, Black Lives Matter would or wouldn't be doing. Is there a reason you've shied away from this? We didn't become the leaders because we designated ourselves as the leaders. We became the leaders because people said, oh, these three women started this thing and they must be the leaders. I do think with the protest in particular, we believe that people have the right, the constitutional right to protest. And protest is not just here in this country. We've seen people across the globe stand up and protest. The Black Lives Matter organization believes in nonviolent protests. We also believe that people are angry and hurt and um, are trying to figure out when is this government going to finally listen to us. We also know that oftentimes what happens inside protests are not always what they seem. Right, it's right. always Black Lives Matter protesters burning up a building. Sometimes and often it's agent provocateurs. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so we've been very careful about how we talk about the protests because we don't truly know who is doing what. Right, um, right. And it's important that we stay on message about what we want. We want to defund the police. We want to invest in social services. We want the Breathe Act passed. And we want to make sure that our government treats black people as human beings. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, good luck with the rest of the journey. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, if you liked hearing what Patrice Cullors had to say earlier, well, you might consider donating to her organization, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there. Wear a mask. And no, guys, guys, no, please. Guys, you can, you can wear a Trump mask. Guys, you can... Okay, you know what? Just go out there and get that corona, you rascals. <laughs> the Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.